Father, I pray that through your grace, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The past few weeks have been difficult in our nation. Actually, maybe a better way to say that, a more appropriate way to say that, would be the past few weeks have been eye-opening for us as a nation. We have watched as, as people have expressed their pain and their agony and their struggle. And maybe we, we resonate with that and we understand that and maybe we don't. Maybe our mind is just filled with more questions. But as I have watched and pondered and talked and listened, it's been clear to me that God, God has been prompting me to, to say something and to speak into the situation that we are facing as a nation now and have faced for a long, long time. This is a, a difficult thing for us to address. I mean, for me personally, I mean, I, I don't really relish the role of prophet. I really like having us come together and say nice things and we all walk away feeling very good about ourselves. But the gospel challenges us. And the gospel calls us to, to see and to think and to be more than we are. I mean, that's the point of following Jesus, is that he is continually desiring to change us and to shape us into his image. And I think it's difficult for us to, to approach issues like racism because it's so big and it's so deep and it's been going on so long that we wonder, can any progress really be made? And sometimes that causes us to say, well, we just won't do anything. But every progress, every change, every transformation begins with a first step. And as I was thinking about today's sermon, that's really my intent for what we are talking about and doing today, that it becomes for us a first step. And I believe that there is a sense in which that first step begins in Psalm 7. Ellsworth Callis was, uh, for many years, a pastor. He was a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary. He was also the president of Asbury Seminary for a while. And he has written a number of books and, about what he calls looking at Scripture from the backside. And by that he means that thinking about Scripture as in a way that, that is different than we normally look at it. Particularly Scripture that is very familiar to us. You know, sometimes we read passages of Scripture, we know them so well, we've read them so often, that when we, when we read them again, they just sort of go past us. But to think about looking at Scripture from the backside is a way of thinking about looking at Scripture differently than we normally do. And as I was thinking about that, and I was reading Psalm 7, it struck me that that's the way to approach it. It's not the only way to approach it, but it's one way to approach it. And instead of reading Psalm 7 and putting us in the middle of it, what if we were to read Psalm 7 and put other people in the middle of it? When we do that, we become, it, it takes on a little bit different dynamic for us. And you know, I think it's always good for us to think about things with other people in mind, not just ourselves in mind. 
And so I want us to think about Psalm 7 in that way. We really don't know much about the psalm. We, we find in the, in the title, in the introduction, it tells us it's a psalm of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush of the tribe of Benjamin. But we really don't know who Cush is. What we do know is that, is that David writes this psalm because he is being slandered. David, if David is, things are being said about David that are untrue. Things are being said about David to, to smear his reputation, to make him look bad, to turn people against him. And he cries out and says, Lord, why? What's happening here? One thing we do know about the, the introduction of this psalm is that the tribe of Benjamin is the tribe of, of King Saul, who was David's predecessor. And, and Saul, the kingdom was taken away from Saul and his family because Saul rejected God. And there were people in the tribe of Benjamin who were still bitter toward David because David became the next king God chose. David didn't, didn't do any, have anything to do with Saul's kingdom coming to an end. But because David was the next person in line, their animosity is, is turned toward him. We know later in, when David's son Absalom uh, takes over the kingdom for a little while, there are some people in the tribe of Benjamin who help him defeat David. There is this animosity, and there's a good, maybe it's coming from that reason that they just don't like David because of what he represents and who he is. It's not because David has done anything. It's just because of who he is. And when you think about racism, I mean, isn't that really at the heart of it? That people are mistreated, people are hated, simply because of the color of their skin. It's not because of things that have been done, it's simply because of the color of their skin. No wonder, and you can hear, you can hear the cries of people related to racism and injustice as you look at verses 2 to 5. You hear them cry, if you don't rescue us, our enemies will maul us like a lion, tearing us to pieces with no one to rescue us. Oh Lord, if we've done wrong or are guilty of injustice, if we betrayed a friend or plunder our enemy without cause, then let our enemies capture us. Let them trample us in the ground and drag us our honor in the dust. But Lord, I don't think we have. And David talks about how how he is righteous. And I don't think righteous in this context means perfect. It just means innocent of the things being said about him. And the whole issue of racism rests on a mindset about a group of people simply because of their race. And like David, they cry out for help. One of the things that I find when I read this psalm is that is that. This is a very personal thing for David. This injustice that David is feeling is very personal, but it's not only personal. He writes in verses 7 and 8, Gather the nations before you, rule over them on high. The Lord judges the nations. And I, I wonder, why does David bring the nations into this psalm? This is about David being slandered, but he makes it wider. It's so much bigger. And I think it's because David understands that personal injustice is allowed because it's rooted in systemic injustice. That there is a world in which that operates in a, in a system of injustice. And when the world operates in a system of injustice, then personal injustice is allowed and ignored. 
and carried out. And the same thing is true with racism. The problem is with racism is not just that it is personal, though it is deeply personal. But the reason racism is allowed and ignored is because it is in the context of systemic racism. And sometimes it's hard for us, particularly people who are white, to see that and to believe that. Because we are not the victims of that kind of systemic racism. And it's hard to see it, but we need to see it and we need to understand it. I was in a meeting a week or so ago with some of our uh, Western New York pastors. And it was a Zoom meeting and, and uh, we were listening to uh, some other pastors uh, who were black, who were telling us some of their stories. And one of the pastors, uh, who's a young African-American man who pastors a church in Buffalo, he, he said it was fine for me to tell this story. But he was telling us that when he was in high school, some kids came to school one day with, with a, a rope, and they put a noose around his neck. And they joked about lynching him after school. And he said, as bad as that was, the worst thing was that all the students who were watching this and, all, and the teachers that were watching this didn't say a word. And he said, I came to realize that the reason they didn't say anything about doing that to a 15-year-old high school student was because this is what happens in a world of systemic racism. I was reading an article this week, an interview with uh, Lawrence Aker III, who's a pastor of, uh, I believe it's Cornerstone Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York. Large church, a, a historic church. And he was talking about the fact that he always carries with him four pieces of identification. His driver's license, his clergy pass, his New York clergy pass, and his passport. Because he said, I have been in so many situations where people have said to me, I don't think you belong here. And he has to prove that he does. That's systemic racism. And we need to understand the pain and the agony of that. And it's out of that kind of, of racism, that kind of injustice, that our our brothers and sisters of color are speaking to us. The thing that intrigues me about this psalm also is that, is that David, David believes that God is righteous. You know, at the heart of our faith is that God is righteous. And we, we want God to act righteously. We want God to ask, act justly. Until when God does that, it surprises us. Because David says, when God acts justly, things begin to happen. And so, you find that he says in verse, uh, in verse 11, he says, God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. Now we read that and we think, well that doesn't sound like the God we worship. It, it makes us uncomfortable to think that God is angry with the wicked every day. And we read a lot of the Psalms, and they, 
they bother us because, uh, you know, the David and others are saying, God, we want you to attack our enemies. We want you to get our enemies. We want you to get, take care of the wicked. And it makes us uncomfortable. But again, when you look at this from the backside, people who are the, the victims of injustice are just simply crying out for justice. And David says that's what God does. And I don't think we take the righteousness of God seriously enough. I don't think we take seriously enough the fact that God is, cares deeply about justice. And that God has promised to act severely about injustice. I mean, all you have to do is read the prophets. And over and over and over again, the prophets come and speak the word of the Lord. Not just about injustice, but what God is going to do about injustice. And the harsh ways in which God is going to treat people who perpetrate injustice. And if we're ever going to have the heart of God, we need to see that. And we need to understand that. That God hates injustice. And if God hates injustice, then God hates racism. And he is going to act about it. And he's going to hold people accountable about it. And until that begins to become a reality for us, it will always be something that we can either take or leave and not worry about it. But God doesn't and God can't. It's sort of like, it's sort of like a, a grizzly bear protecting her cubs. You know, when you're, trying to, when you're trying to do something to those cubs, it feels like the grizzly bear is being awfully aggressive. But if you're the cubs, it feels like love. God cares. And God is at work. And it matters to God. Justice matters to God. And David says we need to make sure that we are on the right side of justice or we will feel God's wrath about it. Now the question that, that always arises is what do we do? What's our response to racism? What do we do about the things that are happening in our world? One of the ways that, that we, have a, we may tend to respond is to say, well, I, I don't see color. And I know what we mean. We mean by that I'm trying to treat everyone the same. And I think there's a way in which that's right and that's good. But there's also a way in which it's not. Because what we are implying, if we really stop and think about it, is that the problem is that there are people of color. And if we could just make everybody the same, then the problem would go away. But that's not how God created us. God created us in the beautiful diversity of so many things, including human beings. God loves diversity. And God created us with diversity. And the, then the point is not to eliminate the diversity. The point is to love each other and to see the value of our diversity. And to find great beauty in our diversity. And rather than it dividing us, and rather than us trying to, to sort of make everyone the same, we realize that there is great joy and power in our differences. 
I remember the first time that Revelation 7, 9 sort of grabbed me. You know, I'd read Revelation numerous times. I'd read that chapter numerous times. And then all of a sudden, one day, I, I saw what I hadn't seen before. And I came to this verse that said, John says, I saw a vast crowd from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And the question that came to my mind was, how does John know that there are people there of every nation and tribe and people and tongue? How does he know that? And I think the only answer is, is because he can see that they are from different tribes and languages, people and nations. And all of a sudden I realized that one of the great blessings and joys of, of eternity is that is all of our diversity. And we will celebrate that and, and it will be in, it, and God celebrates it. God doesn't eliminate that. He invites it and he creates it and he celebrates that diversity. And if the eternal kingdom is going to be about diversity, then what would make us think that we would want to do anything to eliminate that or even to minimize that now? We celebrate that. Maybe the, the day of Pentecost gives us just a little glimpse into that day. Because on the day of Pentecost, it tells us that there are people there in Jerusalem from all over the world and they all come from different races, and they all speak different languages. And when the Holy Spirit comes, the coming of the Spirit doesn't eliminate all the differences. It allows the church to celebrate those differences and to engage people with their differences. And I think that's what the kingdom is about. So how do we respond? I think the very first thing that has to happen is that we need to repent. We repent. When you look at verse 12, David says that if a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword, he will bend and string his bow, he will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot his flaming arrows. We repent. To repent is to say, God, I realize that I have not had your mind. I've not thought your thoughts. My attitude has not been your attitude. My perspective has not been your perspective. My heart has not been your heart. Forgive me. We sang earlier, Lord, have mercy. That's repentance. God, come and change me. I realize that my perspective and my attitude and my actions and my mindset have not been yours. Forgive me. Forgive me. I want your mind. I want to see people the way you see them. I want to, I want to be engaged with people the way you are engaged with them. Forgive me for all the ways in which I've not. There may be some people that we need to, to offer words of repentance as well. We may, there may be some people that we need to go to and say, please forgive me. My attitude and my actions and my mind have not been of Christ. Forgive me. I mean, that's the nature of the kingdom. To live in that kind of spirit of repentance. 
I also find that Galatians 6.2 is a really valuable thing for us here as well. In Galatians 6, a variety of translations, but the New Revised Standard Version says that we are to bear each other's burdens. We bear one another's burdens. It's interesting, if you stop and think about that, to bear each other's burdens means that I bear a burden that's not my burden. Paul is saying, look, I know that the burden that are around you, that's not your burden. You don't have that burden. That's not your thing, but it's their thing. And because it's their thing, it now becomes your thing. And when we think about the world around us, we think about our nation, we think about racism. People, we, we need to feel the burden of our brothers and sisters of color. We need to say, how can I help bear your burden? And to be, do that willingly, lovingly. To see it as an opportunity to bear to be image bearers of Christ. To see it as a privilege that God gives us to love each other. And what does it look like to take on burdens, to bear burdens of other people when it's not our burden? I think when, it, when we think about racism, one of the first things we have to do is to acknowledge the reality and the truth of systemic racism. I think it's hard for us when we are not feeling it, when we don't face it every day, it's difficult for us to see it. But we have to acknowledge that it's true, that it's a reality. And I know it's hard because to acknowledge it means that now we have to address it. But that's the point. To acknowledge it means that now we we open ourselves up to feel it. That's the point. To acknowledge it is to say it's true, it's real. It may not be against me, but it's true and real against many other people. And I need to acknowledge that, and I need to be willing to feel it. To feel the pain, the heartache, the despair, the agony of years and years and years and years of living with this systemic injustice. To feel it. It ought to make us weep. It ought to make us angry. It ought to cause burden in us. And I think a, a big part of, of coming to that place is being willing to educate ourselves. It matters the kinds of books and materials we read. It matters the kind of media we watch. It matters the kind of, of social media we engage with. Because all the things that we put into our mind shape our attitudes and our minds. And we need to be willing to step outside of what might be comfortable for us. And to read and to watch and to see and to educate ourselves about the reality of what many, many people experience every day. I think it's important that we teach our children how much God hates racism and injustice. If we're ever going to, to, to make any kind of a difference in the next generation, we have to start with our children. 
We need to help them understand the scourge of this. Help them feel what people of color feel. Help them learn and understand. Help them to see how desperately God wants justice for his creation. I think it's important for us to build relationships with people of color. And to do that by humble listening. We come into relationships not to teach, not to, to, to be the, the person of privilege, but to be a humble listener, a learner. To say, help me, teach me. Tell me your stories. And not to be defensive and not to be offended, but to simply be a loving listener to people in pain and need. That's what love does. That's bearing each other's burdens. And I think we also need to be willing to be involved. We need to be involved. You know, one of the more troubling parts of this psalm is verse 6. In verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in anger. Stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. I find it fascinating that, God is, that David's saying, God, wake up. Come on, do something. Are you going to sleep this whole thing away? And we think, wow, David. But this is the pain and the agony that David is feeling. And I ask myself the question, why does David think that God needs to be awakened? Because it feels like God isn't doing anything. And why does, God, why does it feel like to David that God isn't doing anything? Maybe it's because God's people aren't doing anything. I mean, how often when you read the scriptures, does God say, I'm going to do something by putting his finger on someone's heart and mind and saying, now you go act for me. Over and over and over and over again, God says, I'm going to do my work in the world by calling you to go do, to do that. We see it over and over and over again. And, and how often, I mean, all of our views of God are in one way or another shaped by, by the image of God that's portrayed by people who claim to follow God. Good and bad. We all, that's, that's, that's how we understand so much of who God is. And God is, and David is saying, wake up, God. I don't think you're doing anything. Maybe it's because nobody else is helping him. No one's supporting him. No one's caring for him. And maybe that's why Dr. King talked about how the church not only sanctioned slavery and sanctioned segregation, but also, even when they didn't sanction it, far too often was silent about it. And something in us said, well, if we're not sanctioning it, then that's good enough. We just don't feel comfortable saying anything or getting involved or being a part of it. And what we're really communicating is it's not all that important. Because we'll be vocal about lots of other things that we think are important to us. You know, just, I just read a story a couple of weeks ago 
that for 176 years, there was an auction block, it weighed tons, that sat on one of the main thoroughfares of Fredericksburg, Virginia. This auction block was, was there, of course, auction blocks were used in the days of slavery. They would put the slaves up on this block so people could examine them and so people could bid on them. And for 176 years, that block of stone stood there in the middle of that city. And only two weeks ago was it finally removed. Can you imagine being a black person and day after day walking by that stone and day after day driving by that stone and being reminded of the horrors of what your ancestors went through and this symbol of, of racism and systemic racism and every day you walk past it. The NAACP was the driving force for having that stone finally removed. It took a long time and a lot of court battles and cost them a lot of money to finally have it removed. But the thought struck me. What an amazing witness it would have been if instead of the NAACP being the driving force for having that stone removed, what if the white churches of Fredericksburg, Virginia would have said, that's horrible. We have to do something about that. What a witness that could have been. And we can point them out, but there are things in our lives that are just as horrific that we ignore. That God is calling us to, to say, you can't be silent. As Dr. King said, so often the church has been, been like taillights going behind the Supreme Court and other legislative action, instead of headlights out front, leading the way, guiding the way, pointing the way. It's interesting to me that David doesn't wait. He doesn't make the nations advocate for themselves. He becomes an advocate for them in the midst of his pain. That's our calling. Ultimately, our response is David's response. We pray. We always start with prayer. This whole psalm is a prayer. And that's the right thing to do. The right place to start is to say, is to turn our attention to God. And David does. This psalm uses the word Yahweh, the personal name of God that's translated Lord seven times. In fact, that's the very first word of the psalm. The very first word is Yahweh, Lord. That's the first place we turn. And that's why the psalm ends with a word of hope. That's why verse 17 says, David says, Lord, I believe in you. I trust you. I know you're going to do what's right. That's why we pray, because we believe God cares about righteousness. We believe that God cares about justice. We believe that God cares about people. And so we pray, and we pray for God to change the world. We pray for God to change society. We pray for God to, to break down the, the, all the systemic racism. But we pray first and foremost 
that God would start in us. Because that's where it always begins, in us. God, do something and begin with me. My attitude, my heart, my perspective. Change me. Work in me. Give me a yearning and a passion and a desire for your heart to see people the way you see them. To act toward people the way you act toward them. To care the way you care. Give me the compassion of Christ. Change me. Start with me. Father, thank you for the privilege of giving me the opportunity to be an image bearer of your grace. That's always where it starts. That's always where it begins. You know, a number of years ago, uh, I heard a sermon by Charles Allen. He was for many years the, the pastor of First United Methodist Church in Houston, Texas. I think at that time, in the 60s and 70s, it was the largest United Methodist Church in America, maybe the world. But I heard him, I heard him preach. And he, and he said that, he told about, he said, when I, I was raised in the South, and he said, I grew up racist, and he said, I didn't even realize it until God started working in my heart. And he said, one of the turning points of my life took place when I was doing a series of, of preaching services at a church in Macon, Georgia. It was 1956. And he said, I was, there was a little park outside the church. And I was sitting out there before the service, just thinking and meditating and preparing myself. And he said, as I was sitting there on the little bench, I saw a black woman and a little boy, maybe five years old, come toward, come walking down the sidewalk. And all of a sudden, the little boy took off running, and he ran into the park, and he jumped on one of the swings, and he started swinging. And his mother came running over to him, and he said, get out of that swing. You can't swing in that swing. And the little boy looked at her and said, why can't I swing in this swing? And she said, because that's a, that's a white child's swing. And she took his hand and they started walking out of the park. And Charles Allen said, he said, that little boy looked up at his mother and he said something, he said, that will haunt me the rest of my life. He said, Mama, I wish I was a white child. And Charles Allen said, I, I got down on my hands and knees. I got down on my knees on a bench. I said, Lord, forgive me. And God, help me to do everything I can to create a world where any child who wants to can swing in that swing.
And he did. Small ways, large ways, any way he could. That's what we're praying for. That God would give us a vision. Or give us his heart. That's why we come to this table today. Because this is a table that reminds us of how deeply God cares for people. How deeply God cares for people who think he doesn't. And it reminds us of what the kingdom was intended to be and what it will be. And it calls us to do everything in our power to be his people who say, God, give me the grace to be the answer to our prayer that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray that you will speak into our hearts. Forgive us. Forgive us, Father. And give us grace. Father, as we take just a moment of silence, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts open to you. Holy Father, our hope is in you. It's in you. We ask, Father, that you would pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup here and wherever we are. That it would be food for our souls. Transformational food for our souls. Through the grace of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.